Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thank you for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I sit down with journalist, author, and friend, Michael Faby. Uh, he's been on the show before, and we talk about a range of issues focusing primarily on China. But we also look, take a look at the Arctic region as, a, as an emerging global security frontier. It's a good conversation, so you know, I hope, hope you enjoy it. Before I get to uh, my interview with Mike Faby, um, of course, I'm coming to you in, on March 8th, which is Women's History Month. And uh, it's, it's a time of the year where we take a look at the contributions of women across society and economy. And it's, it's kind of crazy that we only spend a month really doing this. It should really be a year-long activity. And as a father of three girls, you know, I, I really do enjoy taking time and looking at contributions of many women, particularly in STEM. Um, and so in honor of this month, here at the Association of Old Crows, we re-released an episode of our History of Crows podcast that we aired last year, looking at the contributions of women in electronic warfare. Uh, it's a really good episode. We look at the lives of Florence Violet McKenzie, Joan Curran, Hedy Lamar, and I think it really it really helps us understand not just their contributions but their impact on society as a whole. And uh, it's a really good episode. Please take some time to go to our sister podcast, History of Crows. Download that. It's also the first episode that we're releasing this year in 2023, and it marks the opening of season two which will be coming to you later this fall. So please uh, go to History of Crows and subscribe to that. The second thing that I wanted to mention was that uh, I came across a new podcast that I wanted to share with you. It's called Defense, D-F-E-N-C-E. It's a new podcast by Dr. Alex Valente. Uh, Dr. Valente, her first name is spelled A-L-I-X. She's a consultant. She runs her own consulting company, but she has a long career uh, in, in national security. And you can learn more about her at alex-valenti.com. Dr. Valenti reached out to me a few days ago, introducing me to her podcast, asking me to listen to an episode to provide some feedback. Um, and I did, and it's a fantastic podcast. Very easy listening, very informative, very thought-provoking. And so I told her all this, but now I'm offering some unsolicited praise for her podcast on here on From the Crow's Nest because I think it's something that our listeners would like to, to hear about. Uh, so if you have time, please go over to her podcast. Again, it's called Defense, D-F-E-N-C-E. It's the conversation about defense you never knew you always wanted to have with Dr. Alex Valente. Uh, the first episode she, that she had me listen to was with a guest, Dr. Tom Withington, who many of you will recognize uh, Dr. Withington is a frequent speaker at AOC events and programs. And they sit down and have a really good conversation about the contributions of Hedy Lamar, of course, for Women's History Month. So 
Uh, it was a great tie-in to our History of Crows episode. Dr. Valenti also has an episode on sustainability in the defense sector. Um, just all around a good podcast and definitely worth subscribing to. So please go over there. And again, uh, her name is Dr. Alex Valente, and you can learn more about her at alex-valente.com. And with that, uh, no further delay, let's get to my interview with Michael Faby. All right, I'm here with author, journalist, and friend Mike Faby. Mike, it's great to have you back on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me again. It's my pleasure. So I think this is the the third time we've had you on the show, and each time, you know, kind of marks usually a new book. Wanted to have you on the show because there's a lot going on in, in the world and a lot tying back to some of the previous work that you've had. So thanks for coming on the show. Wanted to talk with you a little bit about current events and what's going on, particularly as it pertains to U.S.-China relations. Obviously, all of our listeners are well aware of the developments that have been taking place. Uh, the military now has shot down or is looking for I think four, up to four balloons as of recording of this episode for high altitude objects, uh, but four balloons that at least one of is confirmed to be of Chinese origin. We don't exactly know the others. And there's a lot of questions about what does this mean in terms of the collection of signals, the ability for the U.S. to detect them, what to do with them, what are we learning, and how does it affect some of the diplomatic efforts coming out of it? So wanted to just, you know, ask you to start off. So, you know, the, the first one was the one that got kind of the nation's attention. It was shot down over the Atlantic. We all kind of watched it gradually make its way across the country. And once it got to the Atlantic, it shot down. And the, the story has been that that's, of course, Chinese origin. Then all of a sudden, a bunch of other balloons have popped up and we don't know. So to get us started, kind of talk us through what we do know going into this. And we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Where, where are we at? What do we know about what we've discovered so far in terms of this controversy. Okay, well, let's go with that first one first, um, which is the one that we know it came from China. The first time we're acknowledged that we saw it was over the Aleutian Islands, up through Alaska, then Canada, then down again. And with that one, it was you know, like a, almost like one of these slow motion movie train wrecks happening, right, as you watch it go across and everything like that. One of the big questions is, so what value would this have? And in talking to folks that, you know, that I, I trust pretty well in, in the Pentagon, I mean, tactically, strategically, there's just not a lot they're going to get from that. First of all, you're going to find out, at least when they acknowledge the thing, which is their delusions. Well, that's all changed. Since this whole balloon fiasco has kind of hit the public airwaves, um, especially in the cable shows and everything like that, we have fine-tuned our radar networks. We are looking out farther. We're looking specifically for these types of objects, if you will, before our radar systems set for missiles and things like that, missiles, aircraft, things that kind of represent a threat, immediate threat to the U.S. Now we've changed our these algorithms, and we are looking out farther and for these type of objects. So whatever China learned from when we acknowledged when we saw this, that's, that was fleeting. That's already gone. And then as it's going across, it's been very clear that we were jamming any signals that they might have been trying to send back and everything like that. But at the same time, we were collecting those signals. So I imagine China, what they were hoping to do is try to capture some of the signal intelligence coming up from the U.S., backing that up, take some better pictures maybe. But because it's so slow moving, because we had basically all of this warning, if you will, <laughs> it's, this, this, you know, it's a very slow moving balloon. 
I mean, we had changed everything. We had changed our protocols. We had changed our, some of our signals were standing up. I imagine some spoofing going on. And so by the time our child was looking to find that way specifically for that kind of thing, signals, intelligence, and things like that, that's just, it, it, they just really didn't get what they were, our badge of their hope for. So, I mean, one of the things that we, we've learned or we, we know about China is their, their ability and their pursuit to aggregate and synthesize a lot of information from a lot of different sources. And if you look at some of the other SIGINT platforms, whether it's the low earth orbit satellites, and there's different levels that will collect certain information, but still have gaps in what it collects based upon the time it takes to get around planet. Is, 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 the, is this balloon just kind of a not so much like, hey, we're trying to collect something specific, but just we're trying to fill a gap that some of our other SIGINT platforms might be missing. It certainly could be. The question is exactly what. It's not as if you're going to collect a whole bunch of cell phone signals out there because it's, it's pretty smart in terms of population centers and everything like that. It went over some military installations, but again, since we saw this coming, Whatever that was coming out from these, the signals, everything like that, uh, were, were changed. The protocols were changed and everything like that. It, it, it's, they didn't catch us like, you know, with our pants down, basically, so they could collect something, that'd be it. It's not like, you know, sometimes they, they will, will station uh, people on the borders of certain territories and have them there installations all the time. And that way they can collect intelligence going back for, you know, week, you know weeks, months at a time. Just a... A rather short period of time over this. So I met, they could have been trying to fill some gaps. Whatever gaps they filled, I don't, there's no way they can trust the signal intelligence they got from that at this point in time. With the first one, which we, again, is, I think it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the only one that we have kind of confirmed the origin of. Yeah, the other ones, they're talking it could be party balloons. I'm not, I kid you not. <laughs> so, yeah, the first one they know for sure. Chizing, you know, said, yeah, it was one of ours and, you know, it was up there for, you know, like, I mean, they were going to say weather balloon or atmosphere condition test or whatever. They kind of changed their tune back for a few times, but that's what we know is from China. And you said that, you know, through that effort, you know, we've changed a lot of our protocols, a lot of procedures. It seemed to be at least in the news for quite a while was because we're in the process of changing our protocols and procedures so that we know what to do with it. Was it something that was approved and all of a sudden we realized, ah, crap, maybe it had more nefarious purposes. Like, what was the reason why that took so long? And it was, is it because we knew it was China? That's why it took so long to address it versus the other three that were just like, okay, we see them and we're shooting them down. Well, so going back, I mean, you kind of have to go back a little bit of history for this. And I won't go back to like World War II when they were using balloons like this all over the place. But going back recent history, we know now that during the previous administration, these balloons would make kind of like little forays into U.S. territory. They kind of like come in and go out, and and, and they weren't very long. We, you know, there was tracked, and that was it. Now, right at this second, it, it, the timing is rather interesting. That is, we are very focused on the Atlantic side of the geopolitical equation with Ukraine, and also with Russia kind of boosting up its submarine service in the Atlantic, anything like that. So we are really focused over there. And the Western side, as always, we're focused and obsessed with Taiwan. So with these two big folks on either side, could it be now? I don't know. But the timing is such. At this period in time, China decided that we're going to set a balloon that's going to, you know, go in and it's going to not only 
kind of go this quick foray, but we're going to go in, go to Lucian's, go through Alaska, through Canada, and then over basically the northern heartland, if you will, of the U.S. We're happening to some pretty prime military installations. So the very fact that it wasn't a quick foray, that you had the slow moving object that people could see from, you know, from the ground up there. It, I mean, anyone who turned on any news station, cable or otherwise, knows this is what consumed the folks in the news. You had, you had, you had lawmakers out there posing guns saying, I'm going to shoot this down. So this became basically a news cycle thing. As a news cycle thing, it became something that needed to be addressed. Every administration, that's what they do. You have something in the news cycle, especially something like this, you have to address it. So they addressed it. And that's part of the strategic objective, too, for something like this, is to get people talking distracted or worried or to do something that might help, you know, cause uh, someone to jump to conclusions or something. Right. Well, China, China's going to say, okay, what can we get from this? Well, we might get some intelligence. But we're also going to find out what will they do. They now know that, you know, with this, they can create a new cycle. They now know they can get administration to respond. So there is definitely some of that kind of like information warfare thing going on right there. So I'd say, though, that not for anything, but on the flip side of that, they've lost this balloon. We can now reconstruct it. And that's what they're doing to collect and reconstruct it. We've already collected some of their intelligence. So I'm not sure that they necessarily won on that. And and in the end, you know, what we have, is, again, as you said, okay, now we've reconfigured our radar network up there. We're looking for these things. And now we, we shot down. We don't know what they are. They're not some very insane balloons. They just say one was octagonal object. They don't know what it was. And it, they shot it down up in the high north. So they can't get to it. And, and I'd love to talk about that a little bit, too, because... That just goes to a point of kind of U.S. or very near U.S. territory. We don't have the infrastructure. We lack the infrastructure. We lack a little bit of what uh, Senator Murkowski recently called Arctic comms, Arctic communications, the uh, kind of net up there to basically not only track these things, but be able to recover them, be able to, to patrol this properly. That's sort of, if there's anything that, that this has highlighted, is a need for a better system, a better network, a better fence, if you will, up in the high north. We will get to that because, you know, when you mentioned high north, you know, you are talking the Arctic region and you've got to be sitting there as an author thinking this is this is fantastic timing because I'm happen to be writing a book on this very topic about how to the comms and military infrastructure up in that region and the gaps that are there. And, and as we all know, when it gets to national security, you always it's always about the gaps that you have that can drive the adversary and so forth. Before we get there, though, I'm just going to, you know, obviously we want to talk about that. I, I want to go back to your first book because a lot of what's happening in terms of U.S.-China with the, the balloon and, and some of the subsequent actions that have taken place, you, you kind of talk about this diplomatic power struggle in the Pacific between the U.S. and China from a naval perspective in your first book, Crashback. And we had you on the show, I guess it was about two years ago now that we had you on for this book. So I'm, you know, our listeners can go back into the archives and look at that. But one of the things that you mentioned with our attention being paid more closely to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, and you know, more specifically in the Pacific, maybe the, you know, in Taiwan, China may have thought that this is a good time to try something like this. And the power struggle between U.S. and China is oftentimes one of just day-to-day -day kind of going about your business back and forth with kind of pre-organized or pre-arranged series of exercises. And then 
typically China will do something a little bit more brazen to kind of trigger a different response from the U.S. to see how we respond. Was this or could this have potentially been one of those times where that is kind of a, just a step up in brazen activity just to see what would happen, get us to think about it, maybe give them some leverage, which as you, you were saying, it might not. So what what was going on there in terms of like how the U.S. and China in that region kind of butt heads on a daily basis in that power struggle in the Pacific? Yeah, I think, like I said a moment ago, I think the timing is kind of worth noting that because we're so focused on relative, China could have easily thought to say, this is a good time, you know, let's test the waters a little bit, or in this case, test the air currents, right? We've sent these balloons on these little excursions. Let's see what happens if we send all a little bit, you know, farther. Let's, this might be a good time for that. Let's see if the U.S., you know, if their eyes are so much on the ball over here and the ball over there, if they will take dry off of this, or if not, what will they do? How far will they go? And I do think that there's a, a good chance that that this could have been one of those moves that, you know, China's known for where it does sort of say, we're going to just step over the line a little bit here and see how the U.S. reacts. I mean, on the other hand, I have to say that it can be very, uh, you know, tantalizing, if you will, to give China kind of like this, like, ability, it's almost like omniscient ability to sort of plan everything out in a very precise manner. And I have to tell you that sometimes we go too far with that. It could easily be that someone in the spy side of the house over in China, w without even thinking about things, decide to take this on the road. And one of the reasons I wonder about this is because you have a State Department, you know, meeting was set up and it had to be postponed because of this. And this gave Xi a black eye on the international scene. This is a bad time for that to be canceled. Could have been someone within the, that side of the house, not one in the U.S. and, and uh, China, to kind of work toward a, a, a better relationship right now, maybe. For the crashback book, I was, you know, researching that. I was on the bridge of the Reagan carrier, and we were at sea during RIMPAC, you know, the, the RIM Pacific exercise off Hawaii. First time China had ever really participated with the ships like it did. Send a destroyer there. That happened on the day before, but I was on that ship, and a, a Chinese spy ship, an AGI, popped up. And as a result, basically, you know, the kind of, like, there was a really a good developing relationship at sea with China. During that exercise, that started to evolve. It all ended then. And everyone wondered, why did China do that? And one of the things was, was either they were very smart, and, it, and there was a tactical reason, or the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. So, you know, that's one of the weird things about China. Sometimes you don't know. This could be something where they decide to be more brazen and step out. And it could be like that someone decide to take things, you know, matters known hands somewhere along the lines and do something to disrupt just kind of like U.S. and, and China and trying to patch things up. That's an interesting point because, you know, when we think about global adversaries, you know, or the global competition, we talk about Russia and we talk about China, obviously, we tend to make them very monolithic in terms of how they act. And we tend to think that everything that emanates from them is, is it is strategic, but it's maybe more well-organized and more advanced and more advantageous to them than, and then we look at ourselves and like, oh, well, we have all these gaps and we have all these issues and, and we tend to kind of misrepresent both sides. They actually have some of the same bureaucratic challenges, organizational challenges, leadership challenges that every other country has. So. You know, this could be something where it was, it, like you said, it's a black eye, but, and they didn't want that. 
because they they're not as monolithic of an adversary, maybe potentially as we give them credit for in our news cycles coming out of something like this. We forget sometimes that people are people. I mean, really, I, and, I, and, I, and I've seen I've seen it in, in China. I even saw it when I went on to High Code Destroyer, how the officers were acting just like normal officers, you know, normal naval officers, not Chinese officers. But, you know, it was, there were a couple of situations that came up and it was that, you know, it had nothing to do with being from China, from the U.S. You know, they, these were officers that see how to do something at a certain time or, you know, just involved in the situation that they were just. So we, we sometimes, to your point, give this whole, this like paint this broad brush and that may not be the case. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. 
Now, going back to the balloon issue, you know, you had mentioned, you alluded to earlier that we shot down a few other devices, octagonal shapes, whatever you want to call them, in the Arctic. It, 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 it's raised issues of gaps in infrastructure up there. This is something that you are learning increasingly about on a day-to-day basis because you, you have another book coming out. Uh, you could tell us about the timeline, but it's it's dealing with this kind of this new frontier almost, uh, this new national security frontier in the Arctic. Uh, could you talk a little bit about why this issue of the spy balloons or the potential spy balloons, what does that mean for this region and why it's very timely for you as an author, but what does that mean in terms of the Arctic? Because it's not just up there and out of the way, it's actually raises a lot of issues that we need to address. Yeah, I mean, if you go back through history, one of the things that's been made clear, if there's an attack that's going to take place on the U.S. land from, that, from Asia, and now that would be China, it's going to be through Alaska. It's going to be, you know, follow, on the same, follow the same path as the balloons, right through the Lucian Islands and, and everything like that, and, and, and even into the high north. And if you go back over the last couple of years, I mean, that's why you've had Chinese armadas and Chinese, combined Chinese-Russian armadas making their way up through the Aleutians. They're not just like out for joyrides. They are testing. They are trying to learn how to operate in the Arctic. And uh, right now, we can't, for example, get to some of the objects that were downed because we don't have the infrastructure. We didn't locate, you know, we didn't identify some of these things that were coming across earlier. Again, because we weren't attuned looking for it, but also because we lacked the basic infrastructure up there. If we went for a defense network up in such an important region. Um, Senator Murkowski said we lack Arctic comms, Arctic communications, Arctic comms. And that's what we have to do, kind of build and maintain. But building, for example, even a Wi-Fi tower on top of a mountain that is subject to, you know, sub-zero temperatures most of the time. I mean, down here in what they call the lower 48, we go all hyper when there's like 50-knot winds coming along. And they'll tell you up in Alaska, yeah, that's a Tuesday. So you get, you know, you get 50 knot winds coming across mountains where it's freezing temperatures, whiteout conditions, blizzard conditions, and their towers freeze up there. They can't get to them. So, and this is part of, you know, again, trying to build this infrastructure, what they're trying to do. So you have that, but you also have this whole thing. We only have one icebreaker right now that's really making annual trips up there, Nasty Healy. We are building this, this fleet of polar security cutters. Now, this kind of thing, this is the kind of fleet that will get you into areas on a continual basis where you have to worry and concern yourself about infringement on a geopolitical scale from the Russians and now even the Chinese. And so having these, Russia, these polar security cutters up there, which were designed for the Coast Guard, by the Coast Guard with help from the Navy, these things are going to be kind of like this hybrid that you're going to have a naval component as well as that kind of old ice-breaking research component that, like, the Healy has. This will make a huge difference. So we're going to have a fleet of, oh, you know, right now we're talking about a half dozen. It could be more. They would even be, some would argue, more capable than the Rush. Russia is usually icebreakers right now, even some nuclear ones. But they're almost like cabotage icebreakers. They're meant to keep open that Arctic highway, if you will, along the coast that they operate for their goods, for their cargo, and, and everything like that. These aren't the kind of ships you're going to go out patrolling around and, and everything like that. So 
This would give the U.S. a big leg up and create access for them in a region right now that really is pretty accessible to most folks. I mean, other than, you know, other than native tribes that, you know, who had been there for you know, centuries, other than that, this has been proved to be pretty accessible. It's been a reason you had explorers for years trying to reach it. The Healy went up to North Pole this year. It was only the second time that the U.S. ship was on the company going up to North Pole like that. So gives you an idea of how tough it is to get up there. As we're spending more time up there getting to know the region, obviously we rely on people up there. So one, one of the great things about both of your books, Crashback and Heavy Metal, which talk about kind of building the U.S. Uh, supercarrier, you look at the, the role that people are playing behind these major movements, whether it's programs or major national security efforts, global security efforts, the, the people behind it that are kind of setting the stage for what's taking place. Talk a little bit about the, the, the people up there that are going to be playing a central role in how U.S. addresses the challenges of that region, both, you know, obviously Coast Guard, but also some of the natives and so forth. What are some of the groups of people that are the, the major stakeholders that will define how we engage that region? Sure. First of all, is I think one of the important things to remember is that is America. That's the United States. You know, when we say we are Arctic country, we are because we actually have a Arctic coastline. So th I think this is one of the important things I, I, that I, it seems to be that most of us down here again in what they call lower 48 forget is that this is part of the United States. And right now, as you know, the Coast Guard is the, basically the face of the U.S., if you will, all around the region. It's still, you know, no Navy ships go up there. I mean, every once in a while, maybe. You have a couple of military bases up there, and then we fly F-22s up there and everything, LL, Emmendorf, and everything like that. But for the most part, day in and day out, on the seas, and even, you know, inland a little bit, it's the Coast Guard that is really the one that's carrying the water for the U.S. up there. And that's why they're the ones going to be operating these door security cutters, going to be ones operating, you know, who are operating all the aircraft, especially like C-130s that fly all the missions up there do the boundary patrols up there, and also the helos up there. And helo flying in, the, in that high north is a special art and craft all in itself. Then, as you also know, we have the Americans on the ground. On, on one hand, you have these villages, especially along the high north, along the coast, of, you know, the native Alaskans who have been there for centuries, I mean, and for, you have some who even subsist on like native whale hunts, one, an annual whale hunt, things like that. But at the same time, when, when you, you also have these kind of like, uh, you know, you go back to Krakauer's book, Into the, Into the Wild, uh, which they came movie up, but you have this kind of like spirit of these other Americans up there who are like giving it a go and creating sort of this, this other kind of like old West America type of thing. And it goes back into the gold rush days, if you will. And they are just they're building infrastructure up there that is going to, you know, that create the possibility of building the pipeline up there. And now as the climate changes and you have all these areas are opened up, greater access. So that means you have more cruise ships going up there. You have more companies going up there to do mining, to get resource gathering. And you have more going up to basically, you know, try to fisheries are all changes and things like that. So you have all these different groups basically trying to establish a foothold in this new changing and changed Arctic, Alaskan Arctic. 
And you have this new, these new transit routes opening up. With these new transit routes opening up, with all this new resource accessibility and have, all of a sudden now you have the Russians really kind of interested once again in a huge way and was trying to, I've been looking at some things to say because of the setbacks, for lack of a better word, they suffered in Ukraine, that Russia's retrenched. And retrenched said, we're going to focus on the homeland and the Arctic is Russian homeland. In older literature, they consider the Arctic to be part of the homeland. So that means they're going to be putting more resources up there. And now China. China wants to make sure it gets not only access to all the fishing up there, all the resource up there, but now you've got this, as they call it, that, that Arctic Silk Road they want to develop, these new transit routes that have a chance to open up, you know, faster than, you know, Suez Canal. It's be like a, a Panama Canal of the north. With all that's going on right now, you have geopolitical competition up there of the such you'd never had before. And that's an interesting point because a lot of times when we talk about global competition, Russia, China, U.S., we always think of kind of U.S. in the middle and Russia on one side, China on the other. But the Arctic represents really the one place in the world where all three of them are all connecting. And that pretty much speaks to the importance of that region as also the, the kind of the goal to use that region to advance each party's national security interest. You even get new players in the game like Canada. Because that, that Northwest Passage, the Canada considers itself to be territorial waters, whereas the U.S. says, no, those are international transit waters. So you've got border disputes of such that you never didn't, you know, never had before. Well, not never, but certainly not in modern times. It is the one area where you have all these mixing into one place in such a way that we have not had, you know, in modern memory, for example. And let's not forget, it is the one true border that we have with Russia. So sticking with this issue, like you mentioned Senator Murkowski, obviously, you know, Congress has uh, the, the power of the purse in terms of funding defense and funding infrastructure and across the country. What are some solutions or some steps that the government needs to take, be it on just looking at it from a defense perspective or maybe broader agency perspective? to strengthen our foothold, to strengthen our ability to maneuver and adapt to that region and use that, make sure that it is there the way that we need it to be there when the time comes. They have to continue some of the things they've started already. The Marine Corps, for example, they've started to train in places like Norway, like cold response, um, like they did earlier this year. It's a big NATO exercise out in the in, in Norwegian Arctic. They need to continue that and move that over and look at doing, they are starting to do that. Look at doing that somewhere into Alaska stuff because the Alaska Arctic is, is a lot different than Norwegian Arctic when you get up there and everything like that in terms of infrastructure and everything else. And as you said, the power to per strength, they've got to like basically start building ships that are reinforced to go up into the high north. Um, the, the current co constellation class that's being built has that as a margin. They can. But there's no, you know, and so we have no plans to do that yet. Well, Navy needs to start looking at that. They really need to start putting money where their ideas are, if you will. So that's a couple of things. And then, you know, quite honestly, is they stick Coast Guard members on naval ships down the Caribbean, stuff like that, to make sure that, you know, they, they can have law enforcement on different vessels when things happen. Well, they need to look at differently in the Arctic. And maybe what we need to start doing is put more Navy folks 
on Coast Guard vessels, for example, and sometimes put Navy ships up there and that you get kind of like that you get more Coast Guard crew members on board, stuff like that, because they are the experts and they can help the U.S. Navy get more acclimated to work in the Arctic. What is the timeline for this uh, book, if you're able to share with us? Right now, we're working on a proposal. So we're still, we have to get, make sure we get a publisher. We, we think that this is a big topic. That's major nine and everything like that, that should garner enough attention. But it, yeah, for something like this, what we want to talk about, we want to, you know, just as the Arctic itself needs to be looked at holistically, that as, as we were talking earlier, you need to look at the people live there, the companies that want to develop there, the countries that want a piece of it, and U.S. national security. That's an awful lot that the niche has to look at. And the book that we're putting together right now, which we kind of work in title is Frozen Frontier, looks at all that. And as I've done in similar books, it wants to get down at the very ground level. So we want to take people along with and into the villages of Alaska, take them out into the Healy in the Gulf of Alaska, for example, take them up Coast Guard Helos as they're going through the mountains, mountain passes of Sitka, things like that, and put them on the ground and show them, on one hand, what's at stake here. Show them that the urgency of this. And also, you know, one of the things, and we do want to stay away, um, I think one of the things that has prevented the U.S. from acting on the Arctic as quickly as it should have is all of these arguments about whose fault it could be because of climate change. The fact of the matter is, you know, that whoever's fault it is, whatever scientific or whatever aids they come up with to try to ameliorate this, what's going up there, the Arctic has changed. You go up there and talk to anyone who spent just even a few years up there and they will say, from the locals to the Coast Guard people who've been working up there, everyone else who just goes back and forth, it has changed, it's changed drastically just in the last few years. So as a result of this change now, that means the Coast Guard has had changed all this concept of operations, some of this kind of ops. That's provided more security, for example, when his cruise ship's going through. Okay? That's a significant change. And that change could also further the impact of climate change in the region. As you have more commercial activity going up there, you have, it's going to trigger more and more change that maybe some people are hesitant to really embrace in the near future. Absolutely. And so as a result of the climate change, as a result of the receding ice, that's just make it possible for not only the cruise ships to go up there, but also all of these cargo ships possibly go through Northwest Passage at some point. Years down the road, but, you know, the, you know, not long it took to build the Panama Canal, that was years down the road, too. That was decades, you know, down the road. So we're starting to look at that now. And also, again, access to all these resources, access to the fishing areas that they didn't have before. And that's just inviting the Chinese up there, who were never there before, inviting the Russia reinterest, if you will, into there. So all of this as a result of this climate change that's happened. It's happening, but it's already happened. The flip side of that, the flip side of that is you have these villages we talked about earlier, I mean, some are actually disappearing. Because of the warming Arctic, because the permafrost is melting, and you actually have whole villages that are almost like crumbling away into the sea. All our infrastructure is just, just eroding away. I mean, it's melting. It's just, just vanishing almost like right between right for us. They've had to relocate whole villages and things like that. And that, again, is America. That's part of America. That's what's going on. So at the same time, we're trying to build up our infrastructure 
from a national security perspective, from economic perspective, we have this kind of humane perspective here of Americans looking at their lives being totally destroyed that they've enjoyed for centuries. So for our listeners out there, again, you have two books out out on the shelves right now, which I highly recommend. The first is Crash Back, The Power Clash Between U.S. and China in the Pacific. The other one is Heavy Metal that looks at the building of aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy. Both are fantastic reads. Look at the people and all the circumstances surrounding those two issues. And so I encourage you to pick up a copy and then hopefully we'll have you back here in the near future to talk a little bit more about what's going on. But certainly we're looking forward to development in your next book on the Arctic. Mike, thanks for being on the From the Crow's Nest again. It's always great to chat with you and looking forward to having you back again soon. Thanks for having me. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Michael Fabey, for once again joining me here. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.